Okay, we're going to have another uh, church history session, and uh, we're working our way up to uh, the Civil War, and today we want to talk about the split that occurred in the Baptist churches. There's going to be other information as well, um, but we're going to focus today mostly on how the, the, the controversy over slavery, and that's putting it mildly, stressed this particular expression of Christianity in the United States in the years leading up to the Civil War. Whoops. Yep. Yeah. So the political and social turmoil in America over slavery in the years leading up to the Civil War affected American religious life, as you would expect. We've already seen how so many Christians were drawn up into the abolitionist movement on the one side, and then in the South, the defenders of the slave system, uh, you know, used Christianity as a way to justify and solidify slavery. So from the period of the American War for Independence into the antebellum period, and when we say Antebellum, we're talking about the pre-Civil War uh, or before the war era. The ties between white Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians began to fracture along regional and geographic lines. And we have seen how in the colonial period, early Baptists from England had found a foothold starting in Rhode Island. But keep in mind, the colonies, each colony you know, there wasn't freedom of religion in the original British colonies of North America. Each colony had a, a uh, in essence, a state church. In Massachusetts, the Puritans had their church. If you didn't go to their church, you were in trouble. Uh, in Virginia, it was uh, the Church of England, later the Episcopal Church. So uh, there was really little to no religious freedom in colonial America, except for places like Rhode Island. Um, and also in Pennsylvania, there was uh, much more uh, freedom to practice your faith, you know, uh, presumably your Christian faith. There weren't a lot of non-Christians in the British colonies. Uh, there were a few, but they were very, very small in number. Um, but the Baptists were trying to, because, you know, the Baptists, uh, at least one, one key component of the Baptist faith is evangelism and missions. So they're wanting to share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and they're wanting to spread through the colonies. But they had a lot of difficulty because they were running up against these established churches. In Virginia and other southern colonies, the Church of England, later the Episcopal Church, <clears throat> was the established church and was supported by general taxes as it was in England. A lot of people don't realize in the colony you had to pay taxes to support the church. A lot of, you know, we don't learn these things in our American history classes all too often. We think, the, oh, it's just a little detail, but actually it's pretty important. And again, remember, we have talked about how the churches in the southern colonies, predominantly the Episcopal Church or Church of England, uh, it was, they were governed, uh, they were ruled by wealthy planters. Those were the elites. 
And not only did the elites rule in other areas of society, but they dominated the church. In the 18th century, Baptists began penetrating into the southern colonies by appealing to small farmers and other whites who were not part of the elite class and to enslave blacks. Uh, and again, remember, the Baptist churches were congregational in their governance. That meant the whole congregation was involved in decision-making. The church didn't have an elite group uh, or board of elders or a vestry to make decisions for the church. The whole congregation made decisions. Baptist theology and worship style appealed to those outside the elite. And particularly in Virginia, many Baptist preachers were prosecuted for disturbing the peace by preaching without licenses from the Anglican Church. This was going on in England as well. You have dissenting groups like the Methodists and the Baptists in England at the same time period, and they're trying to preach, and they're getting into trouble with the uh, you know, prevailing authorities, both civil and religious, because they're not Church of England. Patrick Henry and James Madison defended Baptist preachers before the American War for Independence in legal cases that became significant in the history of religious freedom. In 1779, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, enacted in 1786 by the Virginia General Assembly. So in the latter part of the 18th century, uh, these these ideas that we're going to have an established church and nobody can step outside that is begin that that hard attitude is beginning to thaw and ideas about religious freedom are beginning to seep into uh, the thinking of now these are elite people Patrick Henry James Madison Thomas Jefferson but they are beginning to think a different way Daniel. Why does social change take so long? I, you know, it's <laughs> people, you know. You have to change the culture. Right. You, yeah. You, and, and I think the fact that, you know, here all these people have come from England and other parts of Europe, and they have been used to the type of system where the church is, you know, there's one church. Why, why are we talking about having different churches or different ways of worshiping? And, and it takes time for people to change their thinking. And there are going to be a lot of people who are like, no, let's stick to the old ways. Let's not change anything. But again, uh, what is also happening in this time period is colonists are thinking about forming their own sovereign nation and breaking away from Britain. So it kind of makes sense to, you know, the, and again, the ideas of the Enlightenment, democracy, you know, people pursuing uh, different ideas. It's okay to be different. The, you know, these ideas are starting to finally find uh, expression in political documents, in the way people are thinking about their societies, their churches, and other institutions. And again, keep in mind, James Madison is going to later apply Jefferson's ideas 
uh, relating to religious freedom, when it comes, comes time to develop the U.S. Constitution, and he, you know, at that point, he is among the other founding fathers, is wanting to solidify this idea of religious freedom and kind of marry it to, to the political structure. So in, in Europe and in England, you have a political structure that says there's one state-sanctioned church, no separation of church and state. In the United States, you have people saying, or the emerging United States, you have people saying, we want the ability to have freedom of conscience, liberty of conscience, freedom of religion. So this is, you know, and now we want the government to say there doesn't just have to be one established church and to go even further and say we're not going to support the churches with tax money. So, you know, once, once the United States emerges after the war, there are no taxes to support a state church. There is no state church. Uh, the War for Independence. With the end of the war, the Church of England, as we mentioned earlier, uh, in the American South became the Episcopal Churches. And I should note, um, the Episcopal Church was not just in the South, but that was where the majority of Episcopal Churches were. There were some in the North, and they did gradually spread uh, throughout the East. Although the Southern elites remained elite and in control of both state governments and the Episcopal Church, the new legal structure of the United States effectively ended legal establishment of churches and legal restrictions on dissenting groups such as the Baptists and Methodists effectively ended. In 1814, leaders such as Luther Rice helped Baptists unify nationally under what became known informally as the Triennial Convention which was based in Philadelphia. So the Methodists, uh, if you recall from when we talked about the Methodists, they would have a general convention where all the, the top leadership in the Methodist movement would meet periodically. And the Baptists had a similar kind of setup. The Baptist Home Missionary Society, affiliated with the Triennial Convention, was established in 1832 to support missions in U.S. frontier territories. Remember, much of the U.S. remained unsettled and unexplored. In, you know, in the 1830s, you've got a cluster of colonies on the eastern seaboard. But west of the Alleghenies and, and the Appalachian Mountains, it's total wilderness. Um, and so if you're a good Baptist, what are you going to do? You're going to create a mission society, and you're going to get missionaries, and you're going to support them, and they're going to go out into the West. You know, it's hard to think of this now, but at one point, Ohio, <laughs> where we live today, was considered the West, and, you know, it was, it was unsettled. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but then the Baptists are running into a problem, and that is, by the mid-19th century, there are a lot of social, cultural, economic, and political differences among business owners in the North, farmers, and you know the pioneers who are starting to spread out toward the West, and then the planter class in the South. And these different groups view themselves, each other, the United States, 
you know, their religious ideas, they're all somewhat different. Now, for Baptists, the most divisive conflict was primarily over the issue of slavery and secondarily over missions. Baptists began to attract members of the Southern elite planter class, which made regional conflict greater. The number of slaveholders in the Baptist pastorate and mission societies increased, fueling tensions. You know, you've got Northern Baptists looking at people who own slaves and they're becoming Baptist pastors, they're getting involved with Baptist missions, and you yourself, you know, if you're, if you're a typical Northerner, not all Northerners cared that much about slavery, but some greatly cared about it. Now, the Southern pastors, um, pro-slavery, interpreted the Bible as supporting slavery. And we've talked about this before, how Christianity was used to encourage good paternalistic practices by slaveholders. The slave needs to accept his place, and he needs to obey his master. And in the Baptist churches, anybody was welcome to attend. Uh, enslaved persons attended right alongside free blacks and whites of all social classes. But again, the whites, especially the elites, are controlling church leadership, and in most churches, seating was segregated even in the North. Increasingly, Baptist preachers in the South also argued in favor of preserving the right of ministers to be slaveholders. At the same time, black congregations were sometimes the largest in their regions. And you may find this surprising, uh, as I, I do. The black church, despite the horrors of slavery, is, is thriving and growing. Uh, for, here's a, uh, an example. Gilfield Baptist in Petersburg, Virginia. By 1821, it had the largest congregation within the Baptist Portsmouth Association. So uh, Baptists don't have a rigid denominational structure, uh, at least then, at, that, at this point in history, but they form associations. So this black church, large black church, is associating with white predominantly white Baptist churches and mixed Baptist churches. Um, and at this time, it had about 441 members, and it was twice as large as the next biggest church in that association. Before the Nat Turner Slave Rebellion of 1831, Guilfield had a black preacher. But after the, the uh, Slave Rebellion, which we'll talk about, the state legislature insisted that white men oversee black congregations. And Gilfield could not call a black preacher until after the Civil War and emancipation. After Turner's rebellion, whites worked to exert more control over black congregations and passed laws requiring white ministers to lead or be present at religious meetings. Many enslaved persons evaded these restrictions and blacks began to establish their own all-black Baptist congregations with black preachers. You know, so they kind of in an underground way, they are continuing to have their own churches, and these churches are thriving despite all the horrors of slavery and the, the legal restrictions. Nat Turner's rebellion, also known as the Southampton Insurrection, was a rebellion of enslaved Virginians that took place in Southampton County, Virginia, in August of 1831, led by Nat Turner. 
And uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard of Nat Turner? Okay, a few, that's good. Um, okay, so now we're gonna talk about Nat Turner and his rebellion. Now the picture I've got up here, this is not, I don't know, that's kind of small um, print above, uh, underneath the picture, I didn't have much space there. Um, this is not a picture of Nat Turner as a child. What this is a picture of, uh, I, there are no pictures of Nat Turner. You know, photography hadn't developed to the point uh, where, you know, you could really take pictures of people in the 1830s, although there were, you know, they were be beginning to work on the camera. Um, but this is a picture of, I, I found this as I was researching, I thought this was fascinating. A woman by the name of Margaret Douglas, who had formerly owned slaves, then her husband had died, um, you know, the slaves were, I don't know if they were manumitted or, or what happened to them, but she was, after her husband died, she was essentially penniless. She had children of her own. She moved off the farm and into a, a city, and she started teaching enslaved children to read and write. And of course, this was against the law, and, but this is a picture taken in the 1850s of this woman. And again, there were many Southerners who, they didn't go along with the system, and she is one of them. She was eventually arrested. She was put in jail for about a month. Then they let her go, and she went right back to teaching enslaved people how to read and write at no charge. Anyway, I found that, and I thought that was interesting, and, and this is a very early photograph of this woman. All right, so Nat Turner, he, he had unfortunately a very short life, um, 1800 to 1831. He was an enslaved black preacher who organized and led the four-day rebellion of enslaved and free black people in Southampton County, Virginia in 1831. Turner learned how to read and write at a young age. He was said to have natural intelligence and quickness of apprehension surpassed by few. He grew up deeply religious and was often seen fasting, praying, or immersed in reading the stories of the Bible. He frequently had visions which he interpreted as messages from God, and these visions influenced his life. At the age of 21, he escaped from his enslaver, but becoming delirious from hunger and receiving a vision which told him to return to the service of my earthly master, he returned about a month later. In 1824, he had his second vision while working in the fields under a new enslaver, Thomas Moore. Nat believed that this vision showed him that the Savior was about to lay down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men and that the great day of judgment was at hand. And Turner often conducted services preaching the Bible to his fellow enslaved people who dubbed him the prophet. In addition to blacks, Turner attracted white followers, such as Ethelred T. Brantley, who was known for his wickedness. Um, I don't know exactly what he did to earn that, but uh, Turner was uh, credited with having convinced this man to cease from his wickedness. By the spring of 1828, Turner was convinced that he was ordained for some great purpose in the hands of the Almighty. Okay. 
Okay, there we go, sorry about that. In May 1828, Turner came to believe that the yoke that Christ had laid down for the sins of men was a yoke that he was called to take up. He saw the freedom, uh, the fight for freedom of the enslaved was to fight against the serpent and to bring about the time when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In 1830, Joseph Travis purchased Turner, and Turner later recalled that he was a kind master who had placed the greatest confidence in him. And Turner eagerly anticipated God's signal to slay my enemies with their own weapons. On February 12, 1831, Turner witnessed a solar eclipse that was visible for much of the southeastern U.S., and he became convinced that it was the sign for which he had been waiting. And Turner began communicating his plans to a small circle of trusted fellow enslaved within the neighborhood of Southampton. Now, the men had to find ways to communicate their intentions without revealing the plot and songs using code words may have tipped the neighborhood members to Turner's plans and movements. Turner originally planned to begin the rebellion on Independence Day, great day to do it, July 4th, 1831, but he had fallen ill and used the delay for additional planning with his co-conspirators. On August 13th, an atmospheric disturbance made the Virginia sun appear bluish green. Possibly it was the result of volcanic eruptions in Italy, which can cause all kinds of atmospheric disturbances. But Turner took this, like the eclipse months earlier, as a divine signal, and he began his rebellion a week later on August 21st. The goal was to set the enslaved free and to terrorize whites. Starting with several trusted fellow enslaved, he ultimately enlisted more than 70 enslaved and free blacks, some of whom were on horseback. The rebels traveled from house to house, freeing enslaved people and killing many of the white people whom they encountered. Muskets and firearms were too difficult to collect and would draw attention. You know, it was totally illegal for a slave to even touch a gun, let alone own one. So the rebels used knives, hatchets, axes, and blunt instruments. The rebellion did not discriminate by age or sex, and the, rebellion, the rebels killed white men, women, and children. And unfortunately, this is rather dark, but this is an engraving made by an artist who is attempting to depict how he thought, uh, you know, what the group might have looked like as they plotted in secret in advance of this rebellion. Of course, you know, he wasn't present at these meetings. He didn't know exactly what these people looked like. But this is an artist's rendering of what he thought uh, they were doing when they were planning. The group spared a few homes because Turner believed the poor white inhabitants thought no better of themselves than they did of Negroes. The black rebels killed approximately 60 people before they were defeated by the Virginia state militia. And eventually, of course, the militia uh, defeated the whole insurrection, but it took twice as many 
uh, militia members as what were in this group of enslaved. And they had three companies of artillery. So, uh, you know, it was a huge backlash. It was brutal. The Commonwealth of Virginia eventually executed 56 blacks and militias killed at least 100 more. And of course, the white reaction to all of this was to clamp down. They were indeed terrorized, but slavery is a system that, that terrorizes people on a daily basis. So what can grow out of the system but only more terror? Rumors quickly spread that the slave revolt was not limited to Southampton and that it had spread as far south as Alabama. Fears led to reports in North Carolina that armies of enslaved people were seen on highways and that they had burned and massacred the white inhabitants of Wilmington, North Carolina and were marching on the state capitol. Such fear and alarm led to whites attacking blacks throughout the South with little or no cause. The editor of the Richmond Whig described the scene as the slaughter of many blacks without trial and under circumstances of great barbarity. White violence against black people, enslaved and free, continued for two weeks after the rebellion had been suppressed. Turner eluded capture for six weeks but remained in Southampton County. On October 30th, a white farmer named Benjamin Phipps discovered him hiding with the Nodaway people, a Native American tribe. And uh, the image that you see here on the screen is uh, a woodcut, again, an artist uh, giving us his idea of what this must have looked like when Turner was discovered. While awaiting trial, Turner confessed his knowledge of the rebellion to attorney Thomas Rufin Gray, who compiled what he claimed was Turner's confession. Nat Turner was tried on November 5th, 1831 for conspiring to rebel and making insurrection and was convicted and sentenced to death. Asked if he regretted what he had done, he responded, was Christ not crucified? And Turner was hanged on November 11th, 1831 in Jerusalem, Virginia. Yeah, very ironic. Turner's rebellion led to more legal restrictions on the enslaved and fueled slaveholder paranoia. Baptists in both North and South continued to debate various questions in the 1840s and 50s. The Triennial Convention and the Home Missionary Society adopted a kind of neutrality concerning slavery. Now again, you've got Northern Baptists and you've got Southern Baptists in the same big groups. What are we gonna do about slavery? How are we gonna treat this, this horrible thing, this evil? You know, it's there and it's the elephant in the room and we can't escape it. But they try to stay neutral, which of course becomes impossible. And so, you know, the, these associations try to not condemn slavery, but they're not going to support it either. During the Georgia test case of 1844, the Georgia State Convention proposed that a slaveholder, Elder James Reeve, be appointed as a missionary. The Foreign Mission Board refused to approve his appointment, recognizing the case as a challenge and not wanting to violate their neutrality on slavery. They said that slavery should not be introduced as a factor 
into deliberations about missionary appointments. And so they're trying to skirt the issue. In 1844, University of Alabama President Basil Manley Sr., a prominent preacher and major planter who owned 40 slaves, drafted the Alabama Resolutions and presented them to the Triennial Convention. The resolutions included the demand that slaveholders be eligible for denominational offices to which the Southern associations contributed financially, but they were not adopted. And Georgia Baptists then decided to test the claim neutrality by recommending a slaveholder to the Home Mission Society as a missionary. So they tried it in Alabama, now they're trying it in uh, Georgia. But the Home Missionary Society's board refused to appoint him, noting that missionaries were not allowed to take servants, and therefore, of course, enslaved persons, with them, and that they would not make a decision that appeared to endorse slavery. Southern Baptists considered this an infringement of their right to determine their own candidates. And from the Southern perspective, the Northern position that slaveholding brethren were less than followers of Jesus effectively obligated slaveholding Southerners to leave the fellowship. This difference came to a head in 1845 when representatives of the northern states refused to appoint missionaries whose families owned slaves. To continue in the work of missions, the Southern Baptists separated and created the Southern Baptist Convention. Another issue that disturbed Southerners was the perception that the American Baptist Home Mission Society did not appoint a proportionate number of missionaries to the southern U.S., this was likely a result of the societies not appointing slave owners as, as missionaries. Baptists in the North preferred a loosely structured society of individuals who paid annual dues with each society, usually focused on a single ministry. But Baptists in the South wanted a centralized organization of churches patterned after their associations with a variety of ministries brought under the direction of one denominational organization. And the increasing tensions and the discontent of Baptists from the South over national criticism of slavery. Remember, now in the media at this time, more and more abolitionists are uh, actively publishing uh, newspaper articles and all kinds of books and pamphlets opposing slavery. Uh, issues over missions led to their withdrawal from national Baptist organizations. Black Baptist congregations continued to grow before the Civil War, establishing important churches which would survive the war and thrive in Reconstruction. Some were established after 1800 on the frontier, such as the First African Baptist Church of Lexington, Kentucky, which continues to this day. In 1824, it was accepted by the Elkhorn Association of Kentucky, which was white-dominated. By 1850, First African had 1,820 members, the largest of any Baptist church in the state, black or white. In 1861, before the start of the Civil War, it had 2,223 members. There we go. Okay, and this is the building that First African Baptist built in Lexington, Kentucky in 1850 
not a super bright photo, but I think you can kind of make out the structure of the building. Um, this building continues to stand to this day. It has not been torn down. Um, the church actually moved to another church building. They don't worship here anymore. Another church uses this building today, but it's still there. After the war, together with most other black Baptist churches, the congregation withdrew from the Elkhorn Baptist Association because they wanted to be free from white supervision, and they soon joined a state association of black Baptist congregations established after the war. And today, this congregation is part of the National Baptist Convention USA, which is the largest association of African American Baptists. In 1866, Black Baptists of the South and West combined to form the Consolidated American Baptist Convention. And by 1895, various conventions from all over the country um, merged together and they formed the National Baptist Convention USA, which again is in, an, in existence today. It's very large and it basically serves as, as an association, an umbrella over many uh, black, but not all, Baptists. Um, there are many independent black Baptist churches as there are predominantly white independent ba uh, Baptist churches and so on. So some, some Baptists emerge as more institution-focused and some emerge as less institutionally focused. Now, Baptist churches in the North continue to function in more loosely connected religious and missionary societies and many Baptist churches throughout the U.S. function as independent churches. So today, you know, if you drive around Dayton and the Miami Valley in general, you will find many independent Baptist churches, and they usually have the word independent in their name. And they are indeed truly independent. Now, at the top leadership may have some sort of affiliation with, you know, some loosely structured association, or they may not. Other Baptist groups began to emerge in the pre-war years. Controversy arose whether churches or their members should participate in mission boards, Bible tract societies, and temperance societies. So, you know, along with these churches that are emerging, you have a lot of parachurch structures. Missionary societies are essentially parachurch organizations. Um, you have Bible tract societies, which are basically involved with spreading tracts and people going witnessing, but they're structured as parachurch organizations. And then you have temperance societies. There were many people concerned with the amount of alcoholism in the United States at various times, and they formed societies to go around. Uh, you know, some of them were pretty militant, and they would go around smashing bars and saloons and, you know, destroying, you know, wherever they could find alcohol, just, you know, smashing the kegs and dumping the alcohol. Um, but all of that was organized as parachurch. So now we come to the primitive Baptists. And how many people have heard of primitive Baptists? A few. The Primitive Baptists, also known as Hardshell Baptists, Foot-Washing Baptists, or Old School Baptists, are conservative Baptists adhering to a degree of Calvinist beliefs. Many Baptists are Arminian, 
but these Baptists adhere to some aspects of Calvinism. The primitive Baptists rejected mission and social work uh, as practiced by many Baptists, and they condemned these efforts because they said they beg money from the public and are the inventions of men and not warranted from the word of God. And this quote is taken from a declaration that primitive Baptists put together in 1827. The official split between old school and new school Baptists occurred during a meeting at the Black Rock Church in 1832 in Maryland, and this became known as the Black Rock Address. Primitive Baptists reject some elements of Calvin's theology, such as infant baptism, and avoid the term Calvinist or Calvinism. They are still Calvinist in the sense of holding strongly to the five points of Calvinism, and they explicitly reject Arminianism. And they have been viewed as intensely conservative, to put it mildly. Now, there's one branch, the Primitive Baptist Universalist Church of Central Appalachia, developed their own unique Trinitarian Universalist theology as an extension of the irresistible grace doctrine of Calvinist theology. Remember, we talked about the idea of universalism as it impacted the congregational churches of New England in the 1700s. You know, these ideas that people have, they aren't confined to just one or two religious groups. They spread. And universalism, you know, this idea came, universalism is basically that all people will be saved. Uh, you know, there are no condemned. At the end of history, there will be no condemned. There's no hell, etc. cetera. Um, so these universalists were encouraged in this direction by uh, some different itinerant, again, the, the idea of ministers or pastors or preachers going around, usually on horseback, going from town to town, city to city, um, and preaching uh, sometimes open air, sometimes within a church. And these are some important uh, universalists, Hosea Ballou and John Murray in, in the 19th century. Primitive Baptist distinctives include a cappella singing. There are no musical instruments mentioned in the New Testament, and we just do what the Bible does, so we don't have instruments. Family-integrated worship. The idea of Sunday school is rejected as unscriptural. Not in the Bible. No mention of Sunday school in the Bible. Parents are the primary spiritual educators of their children. Informal training of pastors. Theological seminaries are unscriptural as well, and the example of Christ and the apostles show us that seminaries are an invention of man. No seminaries in the Bible. Foot washing is performed with men washing men's feet and women washing women's feet. This is something they do to encourage fellowship and uh, it helps, uh, they believe it helps church members appreciate each other and you know it's when you wash someone's feet you are humbling yourself to do that. They believe this is a good thing to do and they practice it. Primitive Baptist churches arose in the mountainous regions of the American South where they are found in their greatest numbers. They continue to this day. African-American primitive Baptist groups have been considered a unique category of primitive Baptist. Approximately 50,000 African-Americans are affiliated with their own primitive Baptist churches as of 2005, 
and approximately 64,000 people were affiliated as of 1995 with primitive Baptist churches in various expressions. So this is a smaller group, and again, it's, it, today it's confined largely to the South, um, and especially in, in the parts of the South where you know it's mountainous, and there's not a lot of communication with the outside world. People are pretty much living in small towns and, you know, multiple generations may be attending the same church. Um, so it's, you know, it's not, um, it's not something, I, I don't think there are any primitive Baptist churches in the Dayton area. I looked and I couldn't find, there may be one or two, I don't know. Okay. Yes, and we do have Reformed Baptist churches, which I'm really not going to hit on today or talk about, but um, uh, we do have Reformed Baptists in the Dayton area. The term primitive should be understood as meaning original, as opposed to ancient, primeval, or crude. The primitive Baptists view themselves as functioning in the way the early church functioned as portrayed in the New Testament. The term hard shell comes from the idea that primitive Baptists are unyielding in their conservatism, lack of innovation, and strict adherence to what they believe Christian faith and practice should look like from only the scriptures. One of the famous mottos of the hard shell has been, give us our Bible and leave us alone. <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up. Another variant among primitive Baptists is landmark Baptists. Has anybody ever heard of landmark Baptists? Yeah. There is a landmark, at least one landmark Baptist church in the Dayton area. Landmark Baptists believe in the perpetuity theory of Baptist origins, which maintains an unbroken continuity and unique legitimacy to the Baptist movement since the apostolic period. It includes belief in the exclusive validity of Baptist churches an invalidity of non-Baptist liturgical forms and practices, and it led to intense debates and splits in the Baptist community. And again, this, these ideas started in the South, and they took hold especially in Texas uh, before the Civil War. So landmarkism, the term used to describe this set of Baptist beliefs, spread throughout the southeastern U.S. and into Texas in the 1850s, and here you see a picture of James Madison Pendleton. He was an important landmark Baptist pastor. He was from Kentucky, and he wrote an article uh, entitled An Old Landmark Reset, which was a treatise against pulpit affiliation with non-Baptist ministers, and it gave the movement its name. Okay, the term landmark comes from Proverbs 22:28, remove not the old boundary or landmark. Uh, but this I'm quoting here from the King James Version. The word landmark does not appear in that um, translation, um, but boundary, landmark, pretty much the same thing. Other beliefs in, include the terms kingdom and church are synonymous terms. This is different for us, you know, but they believe it's the same thing. So the kingdom of God equals the church. 
And Pastor J.R. Graves, another important landmark Baptist uh, preacher from this time period, believed that the term kingdom referred collectively and only to all true Baptist churches. The church did not begin at Pentecost, but began prior to the cross, even before the death of John the Baptist. That's an unusual idea. In Matthew 16, 18, they believe that Jesus promised an unbroken historical succession of true gospel churches on earth until he returns. And of course, the landmark Baptists believe they are that true gospel church, uh, which had continued from apostolic times to this day. Only Baptist churches are biblically qualified to function as churches. The only Christian baptism is water baptism, even in such passages uh, as Ephesians 4, 5 and 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Um, the, bap the baptism administered by John the Baptist was Christian baptism. The only valid type of baptism is believer's baptism, and paedo-baptism, or infant baptism, is invalid and heretical. The only biblical church is a local church. There is no such thing as one universal or invisible church as the body of Christ. Weird idea, because what they're saying is all the people that came before us, are they part of the church? We don't know. Other Christians in other places? No, not really. You have to be a landmark Baptist, essentially, to be saved. Right. Yeah, well, they, they have their, con. you know, I was reading some of this stuff yesterday, and um, there is, I, I've got some, I've got some websites, if, if you want to explore this in more detail. <laughs> Last, but certainly, certainly not least, um, Pastor Jared Graves, <laughs> this is the, this is like, amazing, <laughs> the, yeah, the crowning heresy. Heresy, non-scriptural, non yeah. <laughs> we're people of the book, except when we're not. <laughs> Pastor J.R. Graves denied the eternal sonship of Christ, saying that the idea of an eternal son is inadmissible and that the phrase eternal son of God is of human coinage. Now, this belief is close to the ancient heresy of Arianism, which is a denial of the full deity of Christ and is a misunderstanding of the nature of God and how his nature is revealed in the Trinity. And again, if you want to study this more, I've got some you know, sources if you want to explore that uh, and why it is not true. Fundamentally, landmarkism was a divisive set of beliefs that contained non-Christian and non-biblical ideas resulting from a sectarian group interpreting scripture according to its prejudices, essentially. And here are some sources. If you are, again, if you are interested in this, I can email this stuff to you if you want. Or uh, I don't want to put this in a text. It's just too much to, to text. But if you're interested in this, let me know. I'll email it to you. Um, again, you can read the Confessions of Nat Turner. Uh, there are the actual words that he spoke to this lawyer. And then someone has written a, um, a novel. Um, 
it's a novelized version of Nat Turner's confession and, and what he did there um, that you can read as well. Um, you can, you know, you can find books like that on Amazon. Um, and um, again, the Landmark Baptists, okay, there's not many of them today, but I will say, and I won't say his name, but there is a prominent and a very prominent, I guess he's Baptist, I guess, or his theology is largely Baptist, but he recently, and it's on the internet, and I can take this offline if you're interested, a prominent preacher who is all over the internet, all over, I don't know if he does any TV stuff, well, uh, he recently, he used to espouse the idea that the eternal sonship of Christ is not truly the eternal sonship of Christ. And he, in, in recent times, realized that was heretical, and he publicly retracted his um, you know, prior stance and expressed the um, orthodox stance, which is that the eternal sonship of the Son of God is indeed eternal. And again, we're getting into, you know, some theological stuff there. You might not be interested. But for those who are, um, I can, you know, again, we can take this offline. But these ideas, you know, we may think, here's a bunch of nutty little groups, and they're pretty insulated, and they don't really interact with the outside world, and time has moved on, but they're stuck in the past. And do, the, do, their, do their offbeat or, you know, odd ideas, you know, that end up sometimes bordering on heresy. Do they affect us today? Yes, they do. And uh, you might be surprised to encounter Baptists who adhere to some of these ideas. Um, you know, they, groups, you know, denominations can come and go, churches can come and go, but ideas stick around for a very long time. Anyway, this, uh, this concludes what I had to um, present uh, with the focus on what was happening with Baptist churches, primarily in the pre-Civil War era. There's one thing, one question I want to leave you with, um, and that is, okay, the Baptists in the South split off and formed the Southern Baptist Convention. A, how many of you know that this still exists today? A lot. Okay, good. Have the Southern Baptists and the Northern Baptists ever reunited? No. That's ne they've never come back together. Um, so I've, I, you know, that's an interesting takeaway. Southern Baptists continue to this day as a separate group. Okay, um, we're kind of out of time for questions. If you wanna connect with me later, or offline or whatever, um, I'll be glad to do that. Thank you for your attention.